So there's this scene in the Harry Potter books, not an endorsement, just an illustration, um, where Ron and Harry find the mirror of Erised in an old attic-type space. Erised being desire spelt backwards. But they don't realize it's magic. Ron looks in the mirror and he doesn't see just his reflection. He sees himself winning a sports match and uh, as a champion being celebrated by others. Harry then looks in the mirror and instead of seeing the same thing, sees himself in the embrace of his parents who had died years before. They're confused, but um, wise old Dumbledore walks up and, uh, and he says this, the mirror shows you that which is the deepest and most desperate desire of your hearts. The deepest, most desperate desires of your hearts. I wonder, what might you see if you were to look in it? We just, um, we just got back from Disneyland Paris a few weeks ago, and I'm pretty sure that my kids would see Mickey waving in that mirror. What might you see? A recent study in Forbes magazine lists the top eight things that people desperately desire but can't seem to attain. Happiness, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, and confidence. The confusion is around how and where these things are achieved. And there are just endless self-help books about it, right? Just pop into Waterstones, and they're everywhere. We have this little book. I thought it was called Higgy. Someone informed me it's called Huga or something like that, I think. Have you seen those little books? Um, we have it in our toilet downstairs, and it's about how to achieve happiness like the Danish. Um, it includes, like, lighting and furnishing and all those sorts of things, you know, candles, stuff. Is that it? Is that going to do it? Whatever we think will lead us there becomes the most important thing in our lives. Perhaps drink is where we'll find peace. Perhaps sex is where we'll find fulfillment. Perhaps money will give us freedom. Perhaps Disney is where we'll find joy. And so we give ourselves to all sorts of things, but story after story show that they don't actually lead anywhere. Happiness, fulfillment, peace, joy, they remain elusive like the ever-chased but ever-receding horizon. The celebrated author and speaker David Foster Wallace, though not religious himself, likened these pursuits to worship. He says this, because here's something else that's weird, he says, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. But when, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already, he says. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. I wonder what's in the mirror. What is it that you love or to use Foster Wallace's language, worship. There was a study um, recently by neuroscientists mapping um, Apple Mac uh, lovers' brains (laughs) as they trialed and played with new Apple products. And they actually found that the brain lit up in exactly the same way as when people are worshipping in a religious context. Isn't that interesting? 
In fact, the article began with the line, next time grandma asks why you're going to the mall on Sunday instead of church, tell her you're going to Apple Chapel. (laughs) (laughs) See, what we desire and we love matters. Our loves shape our lives. So it's no surprise that in the Bible, it's a big deal. In fact, love is the answer that Jesus gives when he is asked to summarize the entirety of the scriptures. And uh, we're going to spend this week and next week looking at that. So let's read in Matthew's account. The context is that Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles. He's grown in popularity and people are beginning to wonder, is he the Messiah? Is he the rescuer? In the chapters before, he's just entered Jerusalem to crowds greeting him. He's turned over the tables in the temple of those who are exploiting the poor. And the story we're looking at today immediately follows three parables in which he rebukes the religious leaders. And you can imagine how he is increasingly regarded as a threat by them. And so it says they designed three questions in an effort to trap him. Not, not genuine questions, but trapping questions. And the first is about taxes, um, as in money, not vehicles. Uh, the first is about taxes, and they think they've got him, but Jesus' answer amazes them. And then the next is brought by the Sadducees, who are a sect of Judaism who didn't believe in the afterlife. And that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know. Uh, but again, Jesus' reply amazes them. Amazes them. And then we read in Matthew 22. It says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, that's the Old Testament, the Bible, t- tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What is the greatest command in the entire Bible? And he doesn't miss a beat. Love God and love people. And then it says in verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, No one dared to ask him any more questions. The question, which is the greatest, while antagonistic here, wasn't unusual. And nor is it for us. Like we often ask, you know, who's the goat? You know, the greatest of all time. Is it Jordan or LeBron James? Is it Messi or Ronaldo? Is it Federer or Nadal? But in the Old Testament, there were 613 laws. Then with additional Jewish literature, they'd added another 1,500 more. So the question of importance, you know, the weightier ones and the lighter ones was familiar and it was necessary, but Jesus' response is brilliant and once again silences them. And what he does is he links two very familiar scriptures in a way that seems to have been unique to him. Love God and love others. The most important command, the most important command Jesus says is actually about what and how. We love. So in verse 27, if you have your Bibles, you'll notice um, there are double quotation marks, two quotation marks, and that's because Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. So let's turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
This is probably the most famous bit of scripture for the Jews. It's known as the Shema. The people of Israel would recite these words every morning, every evening of every day for thousands of years, over and over. And the word Shema is actually um, the first word in the passage here, hear, O Israel. But the word is more than just sort of sound waves entering your ear. It's like, you know, if you have a, an argument with your spouse and you say, you're not listening to me. See, that never happens with Lizzie and I, but I've heard that there's <laughs> something. Or you say with your kids, listen to me, listen to me. And what we mean is listen and obey, listen, pay attention and do it. And in Hebrew, there's actually no other word for obey. It's just this, Shema covers it. Shema me, you might say to your kids. So the prophet can often say, you have ears, but you do not hear. They receive sound waves, but they're not getting it. It's not translating into any form of doing. Listen, he says, pay attention, do this thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And each word is important, but also sometimes gets lost slightly in the translations that we read. So just take a breath, take a moment. We're going to need to just get our heads around a little bit of Hebrew. Don't do this every Sunday. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The word love for us is so broad, isn't it? I love God and I love coffee. You know, we say, I love my wife and I love cinnamon buns. We can fall in love and out of love. It's feelings, it's emotions, it's so many things. Like the drawer I have at home that just loads of random stuff gets chucked in. We just throw so much into the word love. We even define it at times, I saw it yesterday, by itself, love is love, which is just a troubling semantic loop, right, when we go down that road. I like the line from Winnie the Pooh when Piglet asks this, how do you spell love? And Pooh replies, you don't spell love, you feel it. That's true. And the word here is that, but it's also more than that. The Hebrew word is achava, and it is it's a felt but loyal, steadfast love, unbending, unflinching, relentless commitment and affection for another. You get a feel for the word in the book Song of Songs. You um, look in chapter eight, it says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love, ahava, is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Many waters cannot quench ahava. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for, for Ahava all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. There's, there's no fleeting, tame thing. This is deeply felt, but fully resolved. When fluffy feelings are gone, this remains. The disciple John in the New Testament, he writes this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. I don't think Jesus was on the cross full of fluffy feelings, but deep, unshakable, death-defying love. Love in that way, it says, and love the Lord, your God. You may have Lord capitalized in your Bible, and that's to show that it refers to the name for God, Yahweh, Israel's God, the one who is over heaven and earth, the one who freed them with great power from slavery in Egypt, who parted the sea Egypt and the surrounding nations um, had many, many gods, but Israel had just one, the creator of heaven and earth. They were called not to love the multitude of gods, but one, 
the one who made you and saved you, the God who loves you and chose you. Love, achava, that God, with all your heart. And the word for heart is lev. And it's used as a metaphor for the inner life of your um, person. It's like the, the place of thinking and feeling and desire, like the cockpit of your life. We tend in the West to see the brain and mind as that, but here one knows and understands with the heart. It is, as Proverbs says, where wisdom dwells, where choices are balanced and made. It's also the place where you feel emotion, fear, and joy. The, the phrase broken heart comes from here. And it's also the place of the will and the affections, wants and desires. In Proverbs we read, guard your lev, your heart, because from it flows the whole life. It's saying love with all your feeling and your, all your will and all your knowledge and all your understanding and your desires and your decisions from the core of what makes you tick, love with all your heart and with all your soul, and soul translates the word nephesh, which is a really bad translation because when we think of soul, we think in terms of Greek philosophy and Plato, the soul is this invisible, immaterial, kind of ghost in the machine type thing that floats off when we die. But in the Hebrew understanding, nephesh, soul, isn't that at all. It's a way of saying your whole person, including the physical body. And so at one point, there's a dead body on the ground and it calls it a dead nephesh. And when someone is kidnapped, it calls them a nephesh thief. You don't have a nephesh, you are a nephesh in the Hebrew thinking. Soul here includes your physical body and your actions. This isn't just about offering the inner life to God, but everything, heart, body, sexuality, will, eyes, hands, everything, it all matters. Ahava, God, with all of it, heart, soul, and all your strength. Again, the word strength doesn't quite catch it. This isn't about what, the amount you can bench press, thankfully. <laughs> in fact, the, the word in Hebrew is ma'od, and it's actually an adverb meaning very or much. So in Genesis, we read that six times God looks and says that what he has made is good, and on, on the seventh time, he looks and he says it is ma'od good, very good. And in the story of Cain and Abel, it says of Cain that he wasn't just angry with his brother, but he was ma'od angry, very angry. And when we see the report of the Israelite spies going out and then coming back after seeing the promised land, they come back and in the report they say the, the land is ma'od, ma'od good, very, very good, much, much good. And so we're to love God with our muchness, with all of our capacity with all of our opportunities, with everything that we have at our disposal. In some translations, it, it puts it as, love God with all your wealth. In others, with all your influence. It's talking about every ability I have, my skills, my job, my muchness. Some of us feel maybe like we don't have much muchness. But the point is to love God with whatever we do have, every bit. So we're to love God with our muchness, with our capacity, with all our opportunities, with everything. And the point isn't to divide humans into three parts, you know, as if this was an exercise in anthropology or psychology or something. The point is to say all of you, with no part left out, 
Everything you are and have and think and feel and do, love God with it all. So love God, the creator, redeemer God, with a deep, loyal, unshakable kind of love with everything you have and are. That's what it's saying. So then back to Matthew, back to New Testament and Jesus. This, Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. All others flow from it. Literally, um, the word is hang, like a door hangs from hinges. All others hang from it. Love God with everything you have. Make him your deepest longing and desire. So that sounds super easy. Right? Remember the mirror? What, what do you see? Jesus? God? I mean, when you're not just trying to have the right answer, what do you see? Two things strike me about this, and perhaps you too. The first is this. Do I really want that? Deep down, do I really want to love God in that way? And secondly, how on earth do you even get there? It's not just like a button we can switch, is it? Like, I will now love God, switch. I will now love Apple Max less, switch. It doesn't work like that. How, how do we do it? So to the first, do I really want that? Do I really want it? Because to love in that way is actually quite scary. This is how it hits me, at least. Um, to love God with everything we have is to loosen our grip on other things. Like the monkey trap, have you seen that, where they can't get their hand out whilst holding onto the nuts. And we realize that loving God first and fully, taking hold of him means letting something else go. Putting other things in second place. And that's uncomfortable. Because immediately, it's uncomfortable because immediately we start to think, but what if God wants me to give that thing away or up? Yes, I love you with everything, but not that thing. Yes, I love you with everything, but not my savings. Yes, everything, but not my sexuality. Yes, everything, but not my comfort. Yes, but... And suddenly, it's almost like we do find ourselves in front of that mirror. The things that emerge with our butts and our fears of what loving God in this way might mean are quite probably the deep desires of our hearts. Right? The reason it worries me is because it's important to me. If it wasn't, then it wouldn't. And the reason it's important to me is probably because I see in it the hope and promise of happiness or peace or fulfillment or freedom. Right? I, I see this thing as necessary to that. Sex as a way to fulfill. Money is the way to happiness. Apple the way to deep joy. We're worried because we think we know what will lead to life and we mustn't let go of it. But I think that fear stems from a misunderstanding of what God is actually like. Like we see the whole thing with a grayscale filter on. We're not really sure that he's actually good, that he's really for us, that it is really safe for us to let go and trust him wholly. But the whole Bible shouts the opposite, that God is for us. 
so very for us. He creates us and then we reject him, but he pursues us and he loves us all the way to death on a cross. He's revealed in the Bible as a husband who loves no matter what, a father who gives extraordinarily good gifts to his children, a shepherd who cares and lays down his life for the sheep. He is for us, for me, for you. And moreover, the picture we get again and again is that true life, true peace, true joy, true fulfillment, those eight things in the Forbes article, I I could give you a verse for each of them. Those things can only ever be found in him. Every other thing will ultimately disappoint. But we read of God that in your presence, the psalmist says, his fullness of joy. He cries out, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Deepest joy again and again is found here in God. It's the greatest command because it's the, great, because it's the way to greatest joy. He's not trying to trick us. He's for us. You know, we see it in the early believers when it says that they had their property plundered and rejoiced, knowing that they had a better possession in Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Whatever they'd found in him meant they could smile, though everything else they had was taken. They must have found something good, right? Or David Livingstone, the famous missionary to Africa, who uh, long, uh, just before he died, said this, anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver. And yet, I never made a sacrifice. He gave his life sharing the gospel. Yet, I never made a sacrifice, he says. Sickness and suffering, giving up all his worldly wealth. And he says, I, it cannot, I cannot speak of it as a sacrifice. He must have found something extraordinary. If, you know, I have 10 pounds and I sacrifice it for 20 pounds, it's hard to really see it as a sacrifice. He's like Paul who writes, I count everything else as rubbish compared to the joy of knowing Christ. None of these guys felt hard done by, tricked or like they had a raw bargain. They felt like they'd won the lottery. We don't need to fear loving God wholeheartedly if, if we understand what he's like and what he's offering us. Why trust him with your heart? Like it says of Aslan in the Narnia books, because he's good. He's for you. But how, how do we do that? We can't just tell ourselves to be different. We can't just turn a switch when it's like our hearts and our desires. How do we attend to our hearts, to our loves? We have this um, plant in our garden recently, and it wasn't doing so well. And uh, we were sort of trying to work out what's wrong, and uh, how do we cultivate it and grow it and help it, and there's some you know, key things to look for, to check, and to try to address. And the first was this. If, um, you have to check, is the plant getting enough water? Is it getting the water and the nutrients it needs? You know, just forgive me for the slightly clunky metaphor, but one of the ways we change is to do with the stuff that we put in. 
Are we putting good stuff in, water, nutrients, regularly, daily? It says in the Bible that we love him because he first loved us. And that means that our love of him is a response to his love of us. So how often do we have that before us? If we want to love him, then we need to flood our minds and our hearts and our lives and our homes with the goodness and the love of God. You know, this, the passage that we um, looked at in Deuteronomy, it says all that stuff about write this on your doorpost and uh, talk about it in your home, tie it onto your body. What does that look like for you and your family to be filled with this stuff? The author N.T. Wright and the late Tim Keller both had a habit um, that I've been trying and failing in uh, of reading five psalms a day. So they'll split the you know, five across the day at various points, just filling themselves. Or um, my wife and I sometimes use that Lectio 365 app if you've got it. Uh, where you can just have a little short reflection at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day that just fills your life. You know, there's a thousand and one things you could do, but are you doing any of them? What are you putting in? Back to the plant. Another thing to look at is, uh, is it being strangled by anything? It turns out, as was, that was the issue. Um, Jesus uses the image about good seed that gets choked by the thorns, and he calls the thorns the cares of this world. Are there things in your life that are choking faith in you? You know, it could be the amount of time on something, computer or phone, or it could be like an unhealthy addiction or behavior, but it could actually just be something that on the face of it is like harmless, but it just starts to occupy your attention and your focus and your love. You know, Disneyland, I mean, it's kind of jokey and also fully not at the same time. Disneyland is intoxicating, right? It is just so much. It grabs your attention and it does things to you. You almost need to detox afterwards. We need to pay attention to our attention. What are the things I give my attention to and what are they doing to me? One of the things for me, I remember watching Stranger Things, and I'd been watching it for a little while, and I was enjoying it, I was liking it, but I just wasn't sure. I, was like, what? I just didn't feel like it was doing something helpful in me. And that's not to say as a rule for if that's wrong, it's just in my experience, I just felt like it was doing something to me that I didn't like. I had a friend who, when watching films with these kids, he'll pause it at certain points in the film and just say, that's not true. <laughs> Just draw their attention to exposing the lie before it starts to grow. Is there anything choking you? Back to the plant. Is it exposed to enough sunlight? Are you allowing time to soak in the presence of God? Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to change our hearts. It's through time with him. You know, you could isolate time each day, put some worship music on, uh, you could read a book, you could even go on a retreat. I did it a few weeks ago, just had a little retreat where, um, where just to spend a bit more intensive time. But it can also just be about awareness of him, cultivating an awareness of the presence of God, the goodness of God in everything and in, no in the normal day today. The, the monk brother Lawrence um, was famous uh, for saying that he, uh, was, he had found a way of being as happy in God when he was doing the dishes as he was when he was in the chapel. I love that, just this constant awareness of God. And one way um, 
to maybe develop that is that C.S. Lewis talks about it. He talks about following the sunbeams back to the sun. If you imagine the sun being God and the beams are like the things that we enjoy, then he says in every moment of joy, trace the beam back to the sun. Trace the gift back to the giver. Ruben and I were trying to do this on holiday, my son Ruben, uh, last week. It was so beautiful. We were here in North Wales, Snowdonia. That is good, isn't it? Beautiful. And, um, and so we were trying to do it because we, it was just everything around us was so beautiful. And so we tried to trace the beam back to the mind from whose imagination these things came. You know, our joy in the view then becomes simultaneously a joy in God. It's a bit cheesy, but we noticed how mountains almost do it for us. See that mountain there, and, it, and, it, and the way it points, it's almost like an arrowhead pointing up. We, just talk, we sat there and chatted about it. It looks like the mountains are doing it for us. Find ways in the things you love to trace the beam back to the sun. So there's, there's just a few things. There's so many things that we can do to begin to just cultivate and train and, and, um, and structure our lives in a healthy way. And things change us, but they do it slowly. These things have an impact, but gradually over time. You know, we lose weight if we exercise and eat well, but it's not overnight. Or like training for a marathon, it's regular, gradual, maintained Good habits that over time reap benefits. It takes intention and it takes time. And there's so many things that we could look at, so many spiritual disciplines often called that we could do and turn to that would help. But I think there's something else that's more fundamental than those things. Sort of underneath those things. There's this famous quote um, ascribed to an early 20th century French writer and says this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up men and women to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast endless sea. The thing we need, I think, underneath healthy habits is for our imagination to be filled and caught by the goodness of God, the worthiness of God, caught by the beauty of a life given wholeheartedly to him. You know, I felt my imagination caught this week as I read this story. Um, these two boys, there should be a picture coming up. Is there a picture? Somewhere. It might make its way up. These two boys, there we go, were best friends. They grew up in Central Asia, Bahir and Madet. Bahir and Madet. And they played together, went to mosque together, fell out and made up as kids do. They grew up as best friends. But as adults, there was a day when Bahir some, heard someone talking about Jesus. And he was drawn in and listened and just couldn't shake what he'd heard. Couldn't get this name, Jesus, out of his head. And after wrestling with it in the early hours one morning, he gave his life to Jesus. And Madet knew something was different about his friend that he had changed. And he tried to convince him to give up on this new faith, let it go. But Bahir couldn't. The relationship struggled and changed over time. And then Maget began to threaten him but with telling the Islamic authorities about his faith. Eventually, Bahir found himself detained by the police, beaten and electrocuted as his punishers demanded that he deny Jesus. At the back of the room, he could see 
Medet, his best friend, sitting there. The prison officers started to lose patience, one of them throwing him to the floor and shouting, this mouth will never speak the name of Jesus again whilst bringing his army boot down, crashing down on his mouth. And Bahir, barely conscious, manages to whisper the words, you might, never be, able, you might be able to stop this mouth speaking the name of Jesus, but you can never change what he's done in my heart. So Bahir is released, bruised, broken. He and his family manage to flee and they start a new life in a new country. And month, as the months go by, they begin to rebuild their lives. And there's this phone call. Bahir, is that you? It's Madette's voice. Imagine what goes through his mind. Playing as kids, messing around. The police cell, the torture. Madette watching. Can I see you? He asks Bahir, and he agrees. So Medet arrives and tells how his life has fallen apart and how he's not been able to escape those words. You might be able to stop this mouth, speaking the name of Jesus, but you can never change what he's done in my heart. And after everything that has happened, he looks up, he says, Bahir, I'd like you to introduce me to Jesus. Man, as I read that, I wept. I was in Nero's, and it was embarrassing. <laughs> but doesn't something catch in your imagination when you hear things like that? It just catches our imagination. It's terrible, and it's beautiful. It's like the story Jesus tells of the pearl merchant who finds a pearl of great worth and sells everything he has to get it. Everything is involved in this for Bahir. Heart, soul, strength, lev, nefesh, ma'od. Right? His wealth, his home, his country, his relationships, all of it. All of it. You know what's crazy? Like David Livingston, like the early church, like the Apostle Paul, like the pearl merchant, he's convinced that it's worth it. Without a doubt. This, this stuff, this story, the things in here, it's not meant to be tame. It's not meant to just be a Sunday thing. It's never about mild interest, comfortable faith, or just a nice addition to my life. This is about everything, every day, everywhere. It's something to live and die for, something to give you all for, to love and cry for, to surrender all for, and in doing so, find a pearl beyond value. More than anything else, I think our imaginations need to be caught with the beauty of it all. You know, underneath good habits, that's how it happens. Seeing beauty and building our lives around it. So love God with all your heart. Soul and strength, this is the greatest commandment, Jesus says. And so we can pray, as I pray, because it's not like we've got it sorted. We pray with the psalmist who says, Lord, give me an undivided heart. 